This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Let's uh, get into some of the nuts and bolts about what's going on here in this area. And of course, uh, at the top of that list was the Ontario Municipal Board decision uh, that was released yesterday that essentially rejects the city's plan to keep the ward boundaries essentially the same as they have been for the last 17 years. Uh, Council tried to tweak it a little bit. We talked about it at great length, of course, on this program. Uh, There have been accusations from the critics, myself included, that this was self-serving, that it was gerrymandering, and uh, that, well, frankly, they should have accepted one of the recommendations from the consultants that they paid almost $300,000 for. Well, that's exactly what the OMB said yesterday. They, uh, they picked one for them and said, here, this is what you guys are going to look like from here on in. And it was option two from that consultant's report. Uh, reaction has been mixed on uh, that OMB decision. Uh, some think it's a great idea. Some think this is a democracy at work. Others, well, not so sure. Including in that number, of course, is Larry Deany, former Hilton mayor, who has been uh, a consistent uh, opponent, I guess, of uh, what was going on. Uh, Larry joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give his views on this. How are you doing this morning, Larry? I'm very well, Bill. Thank you. But I wouldn't characterize myself as a consistent opponent of what was going on, but certainly concerned about the implications of what may have come down. And uh, indeed, here we are. Well, and uh, you've been active on social media on this, and uh, I hope you're wearing your body armor because a few folks have been ganging up on you, as uh, usually happens when you take to Twitter on issues like this. Well, give me your read on what you saw from the OMB decision then, Larry. Well, let me tell you that that I I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, There are some good, in fact, there are some very good things in what came down, but there are some some, uh, serious implications uh, that are on the negative side. So let me start with with the positives as I see them. First of all, uh, the fact that that, uh, this was a thoughtful uh, paper that was presented by the OMB chair and uh, his assistant, um, uh, with lots of meat and lots of consideration for the people that came before it, uh, I think is a positive. The fact that they try to address the uh, but uh, address but not be enslaved by the uh, representation, the, the the mathematical representation uh, of of numbers of people in each ward, I think that that was positive. They they improved it, but they themselves said in their report that they're not. Uh, Slaved, uh, is slavishly uh, uh, adhering to a, a mathematical equation. I think that's important as well. Uh, the fact that they listened to people um, uh, and considered arguments that, quite frankly, I, I had not considered, and I attended one of the sessions when they were giving summary um, summary uh, uh, arguments, and and uh, you know the whole issue of diversity and is, is that being diluted by any of the plans? I think that. That uh, was an interesting conversation, and the fact that they didn't uh, invent something new, but they went to uh, the consultant's report and said, you know, this is the one that we think makes more most sense for you. And quite frankly, when I looked at the consultant's report, I thought that adding a counselor in the uh, up on the uh, where the growth is up on the mountain uh, south of uh, the uh, the uh, link um, made a lot of sense. Quite frankly. So those are the positives, but there are some negatives. Such as? There are some negatives. And, and let's start with the disruption of what seems to be a harmonious after, uh, you know, 17 years as a, a unified city uh, where we were picking up some momentum. Uh, I think that may be disrupted once people understand the implications of what these board uh, uh, boundary changes might mean. Uh, and by that I mean, of course, um, specifically 
and this was mentioned in the report, and I think the, uh, the, uh, uh, the chair got it wrong uh, because he only uh, mentioned half of the implication, not the full implication. But on page 34 of the report, if anybody wants to go to it, uh, there is a, a reference to area rating. And uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the presenters talked about the rural and some suburban areas, and I'm quoting here, pay proportionately less for services like transit resulting in lower taxes for areas of the city where the highest incomes and largest land holdings are located. Uh, policies such as this are perpetuated according to this presenter by award structure in which division trumps fairness. And so what that means in layman's terms is that the suburbs, essentially, uh, where the bigger homes are and maybe more wealth is, although that's a debatable point these days with properties uh, hiking up all over the city, um, are not paying their fair share for services like transit. What's being missed and what the, uh, uh, the writer, the chair of OMB, doesn't say is that they're paying less because they get less service. So uh, this goes back to the other, uh, I think, negative about this report, is that it pays absolutely no attention to the fact that promises were made at amalgamation, and that was one of the key promises, that if you don't get a service, you're not going to be paying for that service. Well, this opens the door, potentially, to, uh, to uh, uh, doing away with that promise. So that, that's a huge negative as far as... But, but there's a reason for that, Larry, I mean, and, and I'm going to go right back to Council on this, and I know we, we've got limited time here. Council has not dealt with that for the last 17 years, and, and you may not like the decision the OMB has rendered about area rating, but if Council had the courage to actually do something about it over the past 17 years, that wouldn't even have been an issue. Well, so, so, so bad on them for kicking it down the road, and now the OMB said, look it, if you won't deal with it, then we will. No, no, but, but the OMB has not said that. It, they've opened the door to that. Well, I mean, it's, so, all, it's ultimately going to be council's decision, of course. still has to deal with it, but they've opened the door to that, and, and by doing so, they've, they've forgotten about the promise that was made uh, earlier, and quite frankly, we have been dealing Council has been dealing with it uh, incrementally, not in one fell swoop. But can I mention a couple of other negatives? We've got about a minute left. Yeah. Okay, so the other one, of course, is totally obliterating. Here they are concerned about the dilution of votes and the rural area. They've totally obliterated the rural area, and that is Flamber, Robert Pesuda's ward. Uh, and they've said, no, we're going to join that with Ancaster. Now, that makes some sense in some areas. I remember even uh, Murray Ferguson, that when, when we first amalgamated, considered running in that more uh, rural area. So, so there is a community of interest there. I don't see any community of interest, quite frankly, with, with the Dundas connection that they've made there. So that's a huge error. It's just simply in, in a, a city that, that brags about its rural component as billion-dollar industry, eliminating that voice, I think, is short-sighted and might incite... Uh, the old amalgamation wars of the past. I hope I'm wrong about that. Well, time will tell on that, but you saw that's the same kind of fear-mongering you and I heard uh, back in 2000 when amalgamation uh, became a reality here in Hamilton, and and the, the harmony or lack thereof that you just referred to on City Council over the last number of years may well have been be fact, the fact that the reality is is the councillors and post, most people in the community realized that those rumors were unfounded anyway. And I, I think continue to think that if you elect the right people, you get the right representation. I, I agree with that, and that's why I said I hope that doesn't revive those um, th those 
in some cases, hysterical uh, reactions. Well, that's going to happen, unfortunately. Can I mention one last one? No, not, well, Larry, I got a, I've got another guest I got to get on here, but I got, I'll give you 30 seconds. Okay. Go ahead. The, the, the mayor's role has already in a weak mayor system, unlike the American system where they have a strong mayor system, has been weakened by this. Right now, if there's ever a, a, an old city, new uh, city, suburban divide, the mayor can play the, uh, the honest broker by saying, I'm going to stall things unless both sides are reasonable. Now the balance has been shifted, and the mayor can no longer has the vote, the, the key vote to be able to do that. And I think that's a negative. I think that weakens the mayor's office, uh, and, uh, and uh, in the rare occasions what it might have been necessary to apply some pressure to both sides, that, that pressure is gone. All right, Larry, we'll jump in. We're going to jump into this stage. I know a lot more discussion to, to be had about this in the days and weeks ahead. I appreciate your input on this one today, though. Thank you. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany. Brenda Johnson is the counselor for Ward 11. Uh, her ward is impacted by this decision. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Brenda. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. How are you? Good. Let's uh, get your read on what you saw from the OMB decision. Actually, I uh, got the message through CBC last night. I was uh, doing a lot of site visits, and I got home with it for a phone call from Samantha Craig saying, have you seen the, the OMB ruling? So she sent me all the maps, and I got a chance to look at them. So um, my reaction is I'm going to be very parochial right now. Ward 11 is being divided up into three, uh, which means Ward 10 is going to absorb uh, Winona and Fruitland, Ward 9 is going to absorb Vine Mount and Tapley Town on top of the hill, rural Stony Creek. And the former Glenbrook municipality will be on its own. So that's the impact that Ward 11 has. So how does that affect you as an individual? I assume you're going to run for re-election uh, the next year? Well, the plan is to run for re-election, and now the, uh, the decision-making is where? And that, that's a decision, obviously, you'll make in the passage of time. Now, I don't know if you heard any of the discussion I had with Larry Deani just a couple of seconds ago. Larry uh, suggesting that, uh, that this could cause some rifts, this urban-rural split that uh, uh, seems to still be evident here after 17 years. What's your, uh, what's your thought on that? And, you know, I said the same thing to Samantha Craigs. I said, you know, it's, it's very sad that the, the rural component now is losing uh, more voice on the, on the, uh, on, at the council table. And, and that concerns me. Um, you had five, six uh, former municipalities getting together, and each municipality at the time had a mayor, a deputy mayor, and at least five councillors representing them. So now we've taken Flamborough and we've given a big chunk of it over to Ancaster, and we've split up the one uh, in, in uh, uh, Judy Partridge's ward, so she's uh, maintaining a big chunk of her ward. But we've got Rob Pesuda, who had the very largest geographical area, all rural, and now it's going to be blended in with uh, Dundas, which was considered one of the suburbians as well. So I have some concerns about the, the rural vote. Is there a rural vote? I mean, are there people on council that, that simply cannot represent a rural riding? Is that what you're suggesting? No, because I'm representing both as well. I'm representing those in the urban boundary, and I'm representing those in the in the rural boundary. But when you take one vote away from the table that represents just the rule, uh, 
uh, folks, I think that that's going to have some impact. Well, that would depend also as to who's the representative going to be. I mean, if yeah, you take somebody, I understand that the council pursuit is justifiably going to be concerned about this, but when you've got people on council such as yourself, such as Councilor Ferguson, uh, that have that rural component and actually have worked and, and, and represented those people in the past, uh, what are you really losing in situations like that? It's a different voice, but it's still a voice. Well, yeah, it is, um, but I think at the time of amalgamation that they divided up the wards accordingly so that there would be fair representation for both sides. If you take a look now at the ward boundary review, or the ward boundary that's happening, um, we're eliminating a rural component. So we only have now six in the rural area as opposed to seven. But isn't that because of that's where the population has shifted, though? I mean, is the well, OMB not simply trying to address something the council didn't seem to, to grasp, but the, that there has been a population shift and there was misrepresentation because of that? Well, you know what? We always said that our Ward 14 is, is our PEI. If you take a look at the Canadian Constitution, we have a province that has one-fifth the population of Hamilton, and it has representation in the federal and in the, uh, the uh, provincial re- um, uh, government. So that's our PEI. And because of the geographical boundaries, and I know that Rob's, I've got the second largest, and I can tell you that getting from one end of the ward to the other is quite challenging. Um, so I can't imagine having a larger geographical area and trying to reach everyone's needs and getting to their house or getting them to meet with you. And it, it does become a, cha- a challenge. There's no doubt about it. So I believe that uh, if the rural folks who, who right now, I truly believe, they think they don't have um, enough voices, not just one voice, but enough voices at the table, we've just now eliminated a voice. But, you know, here's the problem that I see, Brent. I've only got a minute left here, but, uh, and, and I understand where you're coming from on this. And I've talked to Councilor Pursuit, I've talked to Councilor Ferguson about this, and other councillors that have represented those areas in past city councils. And I, so I'm, I'm well acquainted with that argument. But those that are making that argument seem to also forget about the argument within the other parts of the the other eight wards in the old city, uh, where population has shifted considerably too. And and there needs to be uh, nobody's saying equity, but there needs to be some fairness there too. And I think what the OMB's tried to do here is is address both of them. And and you know the old definition of compromise is if nobody's happy about it, then you probably got it right uh, because <laughs> nobody's nearly being favored here. And that seems to be the, that what's going on here. Uh, you know what though, my understanding was the directive was not only to look at rep by pop but also look at community as a community of interest so you're taking dundas now and you're absorbing it into another complete large geographical area where's the community of interest for that i know but even if you look at your ward as it stands right now i mean they created a community from mount hope all the way out to stony creek and you know that that seemed incongruous to an awful lot of people at the time for that same reason yeah but i had you have to remember i have 11 communities in in ward 11 so when they did the, um, when they, actually it was interesting because when the consultants came into my office, the first words out of their mouth was, we have to ask these questions before we get started because our staff in Kitchener have to know the answers. And the first question they had was, was, was Ward 11 the leftover ward? I said, what? And he said, the leftover ward. It just looked like at amalgamation, what was ever left over, they put it in Ward 11. And the second question is, how are you doing this? So when you have 11 communities, you work with those 11 communities, and uh, when, you, when you divide up communities or you absorb them, it's almost like saying to them that they don't matter. So that's part and parcel why 
uh, when Ward 11 got divided up in this last OMB hearing, um, you're not dividing up the, the communities. Fruitland Winona is being absorbed into Ward 10, and then you've got, like I said, Vine Mountain Fruitland. And uh, so the rest of the communities um, are going to be contained in the original uh, Glenbrook. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how Council officially responds to this in the days ahead. Brenda, I know it's it's early days on this, and you've just had a chance to have a quick look at this, but thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Brenda Johnson, of course, the Council for Ward 11. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, it appears that uh, Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau were in a bit of a war of words anyway to hear Trump tell the story. Uh, he was at a rally the other day and, of course, uh, started spinning about NAFTA and uh, suggested that uh, he was chiding uh, the Canadian Prime Minister uh, because uh, of the trade deficit situation. And, and according to Trump's version of events anyway, that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said, no, 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 we, we don't, you don't have a trade deficit. There's a surplus. And on and on it went like this. Uh, this rather abbreviated conversation, uh, you have a trade surplus. And Trump says, no, we don't. He says, no, you have a trade surplus. And he says, no, it's a deficit. And, and, and that's a theme that Trump's been using. He used it during the campaign last year, and he's used it since then when NAFTA negotiations started to say that the United States is getting screwed around by everybody, including Canada, with all these trade deals, and and it's because they have deficit situations. Worst deal ever, yada, 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 yada. You've heard all that before. And Trudeau essentially was saying, no, the numbers don't show that at all. Now, economists are starting to weigh in on this debate and said, first of all, why are you even having this argument? And secondly, they're not so sure that trade deficits slash surpluses are even that important in the overall picture. Let me get Marvin Ryder into the conversation, a business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Hi, Marvin. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Listen, if, I, if you were designated to referee this debate between <laughs> these two, uh, this is like taste great, less filling, the old beer commercials from years ago. Uh, they're both right, they're both wrong. I mean, where, where, where do they stand on this? Right. So, uh, let, well, let's start off with the specific numbers here. Do we have a balance of trade positively or negatively with the United States? And the answer is that uh, the United States does have a trade deficit with Canada when it comes to the trade of goods, products, physical, tangible things. Uh, it's come down a lot. At one point, uh, 10, 15 years ago, it was about a $60 billion deficit. Now in goods, it's running about $11, $12 billion a year. But just on goods... Canada does export more to the United States than we import from the United States. So on that level, Donald Trump is correct. Now, Justin is also correct because we say in this day and age to narrowly focus on goods doesn't make sense. There's another whole trade in services, and as well, we tend to look at where money flows. So when I look at things like where Canadians go for their winter holidays, when I look at who holds some of Canada's debt and where the interest payments go, and when I look at service spending, it is the other way around, that uh, Canada runs a small deficit with the United States, not measured on $11 billion, $12 billion, more on the order of 3 or $4 billion. <clears throat> but what was a trade deficit strictly in goods becomes a trade surplus when you put it all in. But in a way, Bill, you're absolutely right. This is like arguing how many angels dance on the head of a pin. It doesn't really mean anything unless the people doing the negotiation take stock of this. And, and forgive me for phrasing it like this, uh, Donald Trump has never let facts stand in the way of a good argument. 
he has his version of the world, his view of the world, and he's going to stick to it. So to, to have this debate between two world leaders, especially when one world leader doesn't care, it really is a bit of a waste of time. But, but it seems to be the foundation for his very argument, at least when he's playing to the home crowd anyway. Well, yes. So, so again, let's let's speak about that. So, uh, where where has his message really resonated? That's the Greater uh, Great Lakes area, a basin where it used to be was the manufacturing heart of the United States. Today, we sadly call it the Rust Belt. But this was an area where cars were manufactured, steel was made, things were produced. And if you compare it to the 1960s, those heydays of the 1960s, things aren't as good. And so people in those areas have listened to politicians try to explain. They bring out the charts, they bring out the graphs, so on and so forth. But in their heart of hearts, people in those areas say, we want action. We don't want words. We want action. And Donald Trump says he's going to give them some action. Whether he's right or wrong, whether his motivation is correct, whether his tactics are even correct, it does not matter to them. Here's someone who's taking up their cause. So, for instance, uh, when he was campaigning last year, Donald Trump said, elect me, and I'm going to change that trade deficit with Mexico. Uh, all your jobs have gone to Mexico, and that's what everybody wanted to hear. So he's going to build a wall. He's going to keep the Mexicans out. He's going to change the trade agreement. Yay, bravo, bring those jobs back. Or coal, you know, you know it's the Obama administration's environmental things. I'm going to come in there. Coal is clean. I'm going, yay, you go do that, Donald. Bring us back our jobs. Finally, someone who's singing our song. It just doesn't matter to them how right he is. And in both cases, uh, those ships have sailed. In the case of the jobs, it isn't jobs that have gone to Mexico or gone to Canada. It's automation. This is where most of the manufacturing jobs have gone. Here locally, ArcelorMittal DeFasco makes as much steel as it has ever made in Hamilton, but it does it with 20% of the workforce. Why? It's technology. It's not because of Mexico. It's not because of the United States. It's technology that's replaced those jobs, and those jobs aren't coming back. In the case of coal, that ship has sailed. Even if coal is cleaner, it, and when you burn it, there's just so much carbon dioxide that's released to the atmosphere and we are trying to move away from a carbon-based economy, even if Donald changes all the rules, I don't think people are going to start buying coal again. But but they must know that. I mean, you know, they, these are not, uh, you know, Luddites that he's dealing with. And, you know, they understand that things have changed. And uh, do they really and truly think that we're going to go back to the days of having like three or 400 people on an automation, on an assembly line making cars in, in Ohio and Michigan again? Well... Uh, Bill, you know, when your situation um, your situation has deteriorated, things start looking a little hopeless, uh, you know, you're going to gravitate to a person who's going to give you the message you want to hear. Do they believe it? On, on some level, of course, I think the answer has to be no. That, that they realize that ship has sailed. But, boy, it's so nice to hear someone singing my song for a change. And that's really that whole rise of populism you see wherever it happens to be, if somebody finally says, yeah, you know, the problems is this and this and this and this, and that resonates with me, and you're going to do something about it, yeah, bravo, more power to you. So there are people, Bill, even listening to us right now, who really don't like the way the world has become. They don't, they don't like Amazon. They don't like Google. They don't want the Internet. They want Sears. They want their stores. They want... You know, why do we have to do this? And I don't want any drones flying overhead. I want the way it was before. And that chunk of society at the moment is just a little more vocal than other chunks of society who say those days have gone, they're not coming back. But we also have to deal with the realities of 2017. 
And and when you're talking about a trade deal uh, such as NAFTA, right. uh, I mean, there has to be some semblance of, of, of truth to this, doesn't there? Well, you know, <laughs> I want to tell you yes. My heart really wants to tell you yes here, Bill. But this is a different kind of a negotiation. I don't think in the last 30 years, as Canada has negotiated trade deals, we've ever seen an administration quite like Donald Trump's. So, yes, by all means, let's share with you the facts, the figures, the, n- the numbers as we see it. Let's try to get a meeting of the minds on the facts involved, and let's try to find that middle ground that we all want. However, when it deals with Donald Trump, there is a certain amount of style over substance or appearance over reality, and you can't ignore that as you go forward. That's why, you know, as volatile as you may think the first five rounds of NAFTA negotiations have been, as we enter 2018 and we resume the negotiations in January, probably in Quebec City, but maybe in Vancouver, I, I would still expect to see lots of drama, including somebody, maybe even the Americans, marching out of one of these negotiations. I would not be surprised Donald Trump... Uh, makes an announcement that in 60 days or 90 days I'm going to rip up NAFTA because he likes the theater. That's the way he likes to negotiate, not with facts, but with this, this theatrics out there. And all, again, I would tell everybody is ignore him. He's, he's like the little child in grade four acting up to get more attention. The wor- best thing you can do for a child like that is ignore them, and that's what we're going to have to do. But we're going to see more of it as we enter 2018. That's absolutely for certain. No, I agree totally. I, I think it's in the cards that uh, that he's going to withdraw because that's that's going to create the headline, and that's what he loves to do. Whether or not it's the smart thing to do seems to be inconsequential to him. He simply wants to make sure that people are talking about what he says and what he does. Yeah, I, I think that's very much the case. Now, the other thing is, Will he be able to do this in the United States? To date, Donald Trump's administration, remember he was elected a a little over a year ago. Uh, He was sworn in on January 20th, so we haven't quite had a year of a Donald Trump administration. But, you know, the tally of success is rather thin. The only thing I can really point to as a major accomplishment for Donald Trump is the appointment of Neil Gorsuch to the uh, Supreme Court. Yes, you got a Supreme Court justice on, good for you. But other than that, there's been nothing done on Obamacare. Even the tax reform, although there are some things that passed, it's not quite clear it's going to happen. Here's his favorite candidate for the Senate in Alabama, loses last night. Uh, Again, there's renewed calls for him to resign over his treatment of women. So he's not had a most successful year. If, let's say, in February, Donald Trump announces that he wants to tear up NAFTA, will the House, will the Senate take measures to stop him from doing that? It's not clear to me at all that the people below him on the scale, whether we're talking governors, um, people from the House of Representatives or people from the Senate share his point of view. And, and again, a bit like that problem child, you can only do so much before you have to reprimand them. He might very well get his knuckles wrapped. So we, we aren't quite alone in this debate. Uh, we have friends, we have friends south of the border who say, look, Canada's trade is far too important to my state, to my region, to my area. We can't have you playing this game. It's okay at the moment. You can go rant and rave all you want. You're not actually doing anything. But when he goes to do something, especially if it's quite controversial and negative, they may try to rein him in. And that, again, is part of the drama that we'll watch unfold. Well, therein lies the problem, are the ramifications of this. And and Trump is Trump. I mean, you know, we, yeah. we, we could spend five hours talking, trying to psychoanalyze the guy, but the reality here is that if he withdraws or if he rips up NAFTA, as he's suggesting, 
that uh, that there are going to be serious implications, and and maybe that doesn't matter to him. But the other people in that room, including Wilbur Ross and Robert Lighthizer, who are supposed to be a lot smarter than he is, uh, should understand what the ramifications are. And it's not a good picture, not for the United States, certainly, and, and even not for Canada. Right. So when, when you have an agreement like this that's been in place for 23 years, uh, there are structures that have been built up around it. It's kind of like, you know, you put a subway in the ground and then you build the tall subway buildings or tall apartment buildings around it. If suddenly you rip the subway out of the ground, the other structures are going to move as well. And that's the turmoil that canceling NAFTA would cause. It, it wouldn't be fun for any of us. Now, would we survive? Absolutely. Bill, you, you remember, sadly, in uh, September 11, 2001, when the World Trade Center fall. It was a devastating thing that happened. But a week or two later, we pulled ourselves together and said, wait a minute, the other things are still there. We can go forward. And we did. Same thing will happen with NAFTA. We can, we can survive it. The, the, the world will continue. And for Canada, we'll turn to other trading partners like Brexit, uh, or excuse me, like Britain, if, uh, given what they're doing, the uh, European Union, maybe we'll even talk more trade with China. We'll find a way through it, but it's an unnecessary upset. And, and that's why I'd like to believe cooler heads are going to prevail. It doesn't do any good for the United States. It would cause tremendous turmoil on the U.S. stock exchange, Canadian stock exchange, things going on in Mexico. It, it's just not needed if cooler heads prevail. But again, this is the Trump administration, and cooler heads and not upsetting people, that's just not part of his talk. But here's the if he's promising, as he did during the campaign, yep. and as he does during these campaign stops, yep. that, listen, if I do this, if I get you know tough with Canada and I rip this deal up, those jobs are coming back. You're going to be making cars in, in Ohio and Michigan like you've never done before. Uh, we're going to bring the coal industry back, uh, yada, yada, yada. It's all going to happen. That's not going to happen. And, and I, I don't maybe think he knows that, but the people around him certainly know that, and certainly the people in those states are going to come to the realization sooner than later that, you know what, that's, he can't make that happen. Right. So uh, keep in mind, one of the things that Donald Trump has an eye on is what are called the midterm elections next year. Uh, there's a whole group of uh, all the people in the House of Representatives, and one-third of the senators are for re-election next November. And, and he may do something to try to give them a bit of a boost. And if he was to do this in, oh, I don't know, March, April, May, it, there would be too little time before the election in November for people to realize the jobs aren't coming back. So it might be the kind of dramatic gesture that helps the re-election in uh, 2018, but when he comes to his own re-election in 2020, by that point we would all realize that nothing's really happened, and in fact, in many cases, things have gotten worse, and so he could very well doom his presidency in an attempt to help the midterm elections next year. And this is where normally a president has clearer thought and usually thinks a little more long-term. Okay, maybe not 20 years down the road, but five years down the road, what will these actions take? In the case of Obamacare, which was a signature of, of Barack Obama, he really knew there was going to be upset in the short term, but he believed in the longer term there was a, a something to be won here, and that's why he went down that road. Donald Trump to date has not really shown to me a lot of interest in long-term thinking, and that's, that's a bit of a, a change for a president of the United States. Normally, they think much longer term, and so we'll have to watch to see whether he really has the interests of his nation at heart. But again, remember, Bill, if I'm one of those people who are disadvantaged, you know, I, I'm 58, I'm not working, I should be working, maybe my pension's been affected, maybe my benefits have been affected, and here's a guy who promises to do something for me, even if I think the odds are stacked against, at least he's telling me something I want to hear. 
you'd be amazed how many people get thrilled when somebody tells you what you want to hear. Oh, I get that. And we saw that happen here with the U.S. Steel stat situation over the last couple of years with the negotiations and some suggesting that, you know, they wanted to keep ramping up and making steel, but you know, there was no market for it. And we're going to bring those jobs back. And I, I felt badly for the people that were buying into that because it's it's an economic reality that things aren't going to be the way they were back in the 1960s. And, and I think Americans are going to come to that realization. But is he not cutting off his nose to spite his face here? I mean, if he he does this to try to score some quick political points. As you just mentioned, when, when things like this happen, markets react, stock markets react, uh, financial institutions react, and, and that's going to happen if he goes through with this, t- this timetable to pull out of NAFTA just around the time of those midterm elections, or at least during the campaign for them. And a lot of Americans are going to say, hey, wait a second, how come interest rates are going up? Hey, how come in a second it's costing me more to buy stuff now? You, you said the other thing was going to happen, just the opposite. Uh, and he may not understand those ramifications. Well, that's, I mean, you're absolutely right, Bill. He, he's clearly demonstrated that his, his ability to think strategically and long-term and, and broadly is not there. He tends to see each issue narrowly on its own merits one way or another. I'm thrilled to say this, you know, uh, given a couple of months ago, we seem to be headed towards almost a nuclear conflict with North Korea. Uh, he's calmed down on that front, or maybe he's just simply lost interest. His attention span is such that he's moved on to something else. But he, he doesn't necessarily seem to get that longer term. I, again, our only hope can also be that he does seem to have short attention spans. And so whether NAFTA will continue to play out, he was on the campaign stops. You're absolutely right. He was holding those campaign-style rallies, but that was to try to get... Uh, Roy Moore elected. When that hasn't happened, now he may rethink that strategy. We've got Christmas. He's off to Mar-a-Lago for a while and with Melania and the kids. You know, he could come back in January and pick something else to focus on for a while. I, I just can't predict where that man's going to go. So I think for our side, we just have to develop a bit of Teflon here. Let him say what he says. If he does do something wild, we'll deal with it at the time. But we really can't prevent this bull in a china shop from bashing around and breaking some crystal if that's what he wants to do. Marvin Ryder at the DeGood School of Business. Marvin, thanks as always. We'll talk again soon. My pleasure. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It looks like the opposition parties at Queen's Park are using the police as a political weapon. That seems to be the pattern anyway. Alan Carter writes about it in his blog today. Alan, of course, is uh, the uh, Bureau, Queens Park Bureau Chief uh, for Global News and also the co-host of Global News at 5.30 and 6, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Alan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great this morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you with us again. A great read today. It's uh, called Welcome to Ontario, Now Call the Cops. Uh, you've been hanging around Queens Park for quite some time. Have you ever seen it happen to the same degree that it seems to be going on now? No, there seems to have been a real ramp up uh, quite recently about it, and it has been become the fallback for the provincial opposition parties, both with what happened in Sudbury and then the data deletion trial that's currently awaiting a verdict that comes down in uh, in January. Both of those cases begin with requests from the opposition to the OPP to investigate. I think you have to have some pretty strong questions about whether that is the appropriate way to to find out what's going on in the in the province. And the point I make is that, uh, you know, if you want to get to the bottom of something, calling the cops is not the way to go necessarily in politics. Look for, you know, if you call for an inquiry, perhaps that's the way to get to the truth. 
But as you, as you point out in the piece today, Alan, and this, this the dynamic has changed here. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it used to be go after them in question period and drill them. And, and there were some people in the legislature for many years that were pretty good at that uh, from the other side of the, of the benches. But uh, now they seem to be wanting to take the short circuit to, to it and simply say, no, 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 we'll just get the cops to investigate it. But there's, there's, a, there's a rationale, I think, to what they're doing here, as you point out in the piece. It's not even about uh, whether or not the, the, you know there was something illegal. The fact that there's an investigation is fodder for them now. Well, sure, because you know you, you saw this in the wake of the Sudbury verdict. You know, the Sudbury verdict was a directed verdict, which is rare in in court cases. It basically, was thrown out, and the conservatives immediately countered when that verdict came down by calling the liberals politically corrupt, and they continued to do so, pointing to the trials not the verdicts, but the trials, as evidence of, you know, ongoing malfeasance. So you can see that really what the judge says at the end of the day is almost irrelevant in the political landscape when you're trying to push a narrative of saying, well, this party is corrupt. But they've tried that in past elections. They tried that with the gas plant thing with the McGinty government. Uh, They tried to hang that on Kathleen Wynne and say, well, she was around the cabinet table. Uh, you can argue whether or not it was successful. The numbers indicate that it wasn't because Wynn won that election, as it turned out. But it's still a tool they seem to want to go back to time and again. Well, the difficulty for Wynn this time is that in 2014, she successfully positioned herself as an agent of change within her own party, an agent of change within politics as whole as a whole. She doesn't have that option this time around. You know, now, this time around, change is scary. Last time it was, you know, I am change. So it's a different kind of play for her now trying to get, gain a, a re-election. Um, but the, the corruption stuff, remember that, especially with, with Sudbury, that reaches right into her inner circle in a way that none of the gas plant thing ever has. This is not a new phenomenon. As, as I read your piece today, it, it threw me back to, I guess it was 2005, late 2005, the, the federal election that year. Uh, and uh, the, the RCMP got involved in that election, as you recall, Alan, right near the, the dying days, just around this time of year, around Christmas time. Uh, NDP member Libby Davies asked the RCMP to investigate whether or not uh, the finance minister was leaking information about changing income trust laws. And uh, and Zaccarelli, the commissioner at the time, remember, went public and said, we're going to launch an investigation. Of course, they went crazy in Parliament and said, you guys are being investigated. She didn't mention the fact that yeah, the RCMP are doing it because you asked her to. Uh, but that was the political tool. And uh, I don't know if it turned the election around, but it was certainly a factor that time. Well, absolutely. And, and, and your memory is absolutely, you know, it's long, uh, just like our teeth are getting long, I suppose, <laughs> Bill. Uh, but you're absolutely right. So it has happened in the past. And I think that what, especially now, is as we move into this sort of, you know, really, you know, shooting war, we've had the phony war, we're starting into the shooting war come the new year in the lead up to the election in June. So now I think we have to take extra scrutiny with our police services and also extra scrutiny with the requests for them to intervene because i think i think we have to ask ourselves the question does that serve democracy does that serve the greater good that we're calling the cops that we have these politically requested investigations and remember in sudbury when you know those two were uh you know uh, acquitted their lawyer said this was politically motivated these charges and this prosecution was politically motivated 
But this is the old idea about hoisted, being hoisted upon your own petard, uh, because the conservatives, obviously, the PCs tried to use this as a tool and have for the last number of years now with the gas plants and, and with this investigation up in Sudbury. Uh, Patrick Brown's facing the same situation now with, with you know, some uh, alleged, anyway, malfeasance that may have occurred during the nomination process, including a riding right here in the Hamilton area. Uh, so you're kind of surprised that, that the PCs, notwithstanding that, are deciding to use this as a, as a club again? Well, I think what was interesting about it is it almost, like, you know, when Todd Smith made the announcement earlier this week, he, he almost apologized for doing it. He, was, he said, you know, we don't want to do this, but, you know, there we feel this is a last resort. It was almost an apology. I, I don't, I, I think almost they sense that they're in some kind of murky water here, especially when their own party is under investigation. That takes a a bit of a club out of their hands to be able to whack the, the liberals around. And you, you make a good point, Bill, about, you know, when it comes to ballot time, does it really make any difference? I, I, you know, people vote on different kind of reasons. You know, they vote for something that they want, and that's what the liberals are really hoping is, is that, you know, all the trinkets in the window are going to, you know, attract people to vote for them, again, whether or not, you know, they're not really crazy about Kathleen Wynne. And you see Patrick Brown now has decided to opted to go with the same thing, more stuff in the window. Yeah, but he's got his own problems when it comes to issues like this, and, and now he may well be in a courtroom if Kathleen Wynne ever decides to, to, to go around third base and all the way to home towards the, this lawsuit that she keeps holding over his head right now. It's, uh, it's litigious, uh, but is that is that the way politics is going to be in, in 2018? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, this is if anybody doesn't think that this is going to be a knock them down, drag them out, knife fight in the corner, it, <laughs> this is what it's going to be in 2018. I mean, we've already seen it. I mean, you know, this is the liberals are not just going to go quietly into that good night. I mean, this is a party with a habit of winning um, and a history of winning. So it is going to be an exciting spring. I know I'm totally geeking out on you, Bill, but uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I love it. Look, it's going to be great. We've got municipal elections and a provincial election coming up next year. I'm I'm ready. I've got my season tickets. I'm ready for a front row seat for this whole thing. <laughs> it's, it's the best sport around. It is, and it's it's live, and it's uh, it's a blood sport, and we, we know that it's going to get pretty messy, especially in the, the weeks ahead. What about the, the, the responsibility of, of police in situations like this, though, Alan? You know, when they get that phone call from, uh, in this case, as you say, Todd Smith, the, the PC MPP, uh, saying, listen, OPP, you have to investigate this. Uh, are they duty-bound to follow through with that, or can they just say, look, don't bug us? That, that's that's silly. Well, it's it's up to their discretion. They can, I, I think that there, there must be um, some, I mean, they'll have to do some due process into looking into whether or not it, it actually requires an investigation or, or rather warrants one. But this is where it becomes really tricky is by just saying, yeah, we think there's enough here to warrant an investigation and saying that publicly, that, that is politically damaging, as we've noted. And also, when we're talking about this case in particular, because what we're talking about here is the uh, energy expenses, the, the expenses from nine companies. This came out in the Auditor General's report yeah. last week. And that they'd been expensing for illegitimate things like scuba gear and parkas and raccoon traps. Those were the headlines. You know, those are the grabby little bits. I mean, we don't know exactly what was turned down but the number is pretty big if you take the auditor's number it's about 90 million if you take the ieso's number they claim it's different they say it's 30 million lost overall after they claimed a whole bunch back 
So it's still a lot of money, but imagine how difficult that would be to investigate and prosecute. We're talking about years. We're talking about incredible man hours, just sifting through reams of paperwork. This would not be an easy investigation. Well, but the fact that the investigation would be ongoing if, in fact, they decided to pursue it, as you say, would be the story that, that the opposition parties would grab onto and say, look, you know, here we go again, another investigation into this corrupt government. Uh, that's that, that spin that, that, that they're going to put onto this. But I, as I looked at this, and, and I, I watched the bit you did with the, the Auditor General last week on, on Global News, where you were sitting there right in the front row when uh, Bonnie Lissick was, was uh, giving this information out to us, and I had Bonnie on the show the next day, and we referenced uh, the segment you the question you had before her there. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, Canada Revenue's got to be involved in this. Uh, uh, there's, there's a whole lot of other folks that are involved in this. It'd be very, very difficult to make a case to say, yeah, that's the government's fault and nobody else's. I, but, but nonetheless, they seem to want to go down that road. Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, again, I, I, I pivot back to if we're interested in systemic uh, changes are really looking at what was wrong, what's been wrong with this program, then I think there's different avenues to go down. But I, I think it's pretty transparent that when you call the cops, your your first and foremost motivation is to score points, not to find out exactly what's happening. There's another element to this, and I think we talked about this. I think I, I remember doing, I have to go back over my, uh, my, my past commentaries on this, but I think it was around the time of the gas plant scandal. I, and I, I was somewhat flippant about this, Alan, but, I mean, you've been covering Queen's Park long enough. And I said, look, it, this is not really going to resonate with, with the average voter here. There are those that don't like Kathleen Wynne that are going to grab onto this and say, see, they're right, she is corrupt, it's time for a change, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but if you like Kathleen Wynne, it's probably not going to have much of an impact on you. But isn't there an overall cynicism anyway? And and I get this sense whenever we talk about scandals, whatever the political party is, uh, whatever the country is, the immediate reaction I hear from most folks, Alan, is, well, they're all corrupt anyway. So what difference does it make? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and I think, you know, you and I, and especially me, I'm constantly, you know, talking myself back from the ledge of, you know, shouting, well, this is a huge story because, <laughs> you know, I do appreciate that this, is my ballywick and that i think that before the writ is dropped next year before we actually have campaign buses on pavement it's mostly noise which we're used to and it's white noise maybe to the average individual i think so i think it reinforces it reinforces those that believe a certain way one way or the other the thing is is that there's a huge huge middle that is unconvinced one way or the other. And, I mean, we saw polling this week that totally uh, shot down previous polls that we'd seen from Forum um, saying that, you know, the PCs were way ahead. This one actually has the PCs behind. So, I, I mean, I think anybody that doesn't think it's going to be close and tight, uh, I don't think has seen Kathleen win on the campaign trail because she is dynamic. And you know what? She's doing this town hall thing again. And this uh, is in a play by the liberals to get her out there in front of real people with real complaints and stand there and take it and say, okay, I hear you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about what's great for the province, you know, and, and to, and to stand up and hum and be humanized. 
And I think it's going to be effective. Well, and that's what I've heard from some folks. I mean, just as a comparator, there she is doing that. And, and I saw some grudging admiration on social media for that. You know, say, well, don't like her, but at least give her credit for getting out there. And you juxtapose that with, uh, for instance, Patrick Brown, who was here in Hamilton last week, uh, and avoided the media totally. Uh, and not just our show, but wouldn't talk to the newspaper, wouldn't talk to anybody else, just kind of did his thing with his little group and then got on the bus and went left again. And people are saying, really? Really? That's what this is all about? So uh, they both got some, I guess, some soul-searching to do about exactly how they want to approach this. Well, ask yourself, do you think Catholic, Do you think Patrick Brown could do what Kathleen Wynne is doing? Mm, I don't know. I don't think he's got the chops on his feet yet. It's going to be an interesting six or eight months as we head up toward this election. Of course, we'll be following it uh, on Global News with uh, with you and Farah at 5.30 and 6, and of course from Queen's Park. Alan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me on. Great talking with you. Take care, Alan. Alan Carter, of course, uh, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and the uh, co-host of Global News at 5.30 and 6. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.